You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hello, Larry. How are you doing? Great, Glenn. Great to be with you. Indeed. And I am glad to be talking to you. This is Glenn Lowry, uh, the Glenn Show at BloggingHeads.tv. Welcome to the Glenn Show at BloggingHeads.tv. I'm here with Lawrence Kotlikoff, who is professor of economics at Boston University and is my old friend, was best man at my wedding. Uh, He's one of the smartest economists that I know and is a frequent guest on the Glenn Show. We count them up. They number in the dozens or something of the times that you have been a guest on the Glenn Show. So it's like he's a uh, uh, contributing editor to the Glenn Show on matters of economic uh, uh, significance, author of many books and whatnot. Larry, welcome to the Glenn Show. Thanks for that lovely introduction. It's overly generous and uh, it's great to be with you. I should mention that the Watson Institute, who employ me, uh, sponsors the Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv. That's the Watson Institute for International Public Affairs at Brown University. So topic of the day, Larry, is economics. What these smart economists, we're going to pat ourselves on the back and call ourselves smart economists, have to say about the economics of the COVID-19 crisis, the pandemic and uh, reaction to it and whatnot. And uh, you've been writing pieces and uh, publishing them in uh, your various venues, and they can all be found at kotlikoff.net. Did I get that correct? Right, exactly. Uh, on, on, uh, te- on the importance of testing, on the possibility of a universality of testing, on how testing information might be used, uh, of what the incentives are uh, in the context of, of people um, uh, getting this kind of information. This is a classic economics of information kind of problem. Uh, because uh, you want people to identify whether or not they have the virus. You want to be able to monitor the spread of it. You want to be able to engage in commerce uh, while keeping people safe uh, and stuff like that. So uh, that's sort of like one aspect of the economics of COVID-19 that I think we could discuss, testing the information it generates, how the market makes use of that information, what the incentives are. Um, and another uh, aspect of it, I think, is that, you know, the relief questions that are raised by the big hit that uh, the economy is taking from shutdown and uh, the, uh, um, I don't know, I don't even know how to begin to describe the transformations that are going on. Anyway, I don't want to talk on too long. I uh, just want to sort of set the stage, economics of COVID-19, to economists commiserating. What do you think? Well, I think... Uh let me go back to where I first started thinking about this uh, crisis back in late uh, in late March. I wrote the first article I wrote about COVID testing said, and I didn't know how we could actually achieve this, but I said, what we need to do the op- the optimal solution is to test everybody every day, because if you test everybody every day, you find out when the virus hits. As soon as it, somebody becomes infectious, whether or not they're symptomatic, you keep them in quarantine. And now you've captured the virus. This is a strategy for, for capturing any epidemic and killing it, any virus. Uh, is that, it uh, feasible? Is it feasible? Well, then I started thinking about how to do it. And I got an email from two economists in, uh, in France, one of Toulouse, Christian Gaulier, who you know. And uh, it was about group testing. And they referred to a, a study that Robert Dorfman, a professor I, who was a Harvard, when I was at Harvard. Uh, the late, great Bob Dorfman. Dorfman, Dorfman Samuelson, and Solo. I, I cut my teeth on that book. <laughs> when we were programming, yeah. So, so Dorfman uh, 
was assigned in the 40s before. I don't know whether he was an economist yet or what. Anyway, he was in the military, and they assigned him to figure out how to test uh, troops for syphilis, new recruits. And doing each syphilis test individually was very expensive. So he decided to take blood from 50 people at a time, 50 recruits at a time, put it all together in one bucket, and test the bucket. Test the entire batch. That's called group testing or pool testing. So if that's negative, that entire batch of of blood is negative, then you can free 50 people. You can say, okay, you're, you're negative. All 50 of you are negative with just one test, right? So it's a very clever idea. He came up with it. And so these French economists said, look, we can apply group testing in this context. And then I called my brother, who's a provost of Cornell, but also a scientist. And he said, oh, yeah, I've been, I did group testing for mice. I tested 40,000 mice uh, together, PCR group testing, where he t- took swabs of the noses of mice and put them together. So rather than taking each swab and putting it into reagent and uh, – yeah, I get it. You, you put in a whole bunch of swabs from a lot of mice into one container and test uh, the reagent of that uh, in one test. So he developed this on his own. Uh, he had no idea about Dorkman's work. So anyway, it's been done for years. So it's a multi-stage. It's a multi-stage process because if it's positive, then you know that at least somebody within that group has – then you can do further testing based upon – that identification, but more, yeah, it's even more yeah. clever because the way it works is uh, you you put it up in a matrix. So you take each um, sample and put it in a, in both a uh, you know a column and a row. You're in a column and a row, and if if your column and your row are both positive, then it turns out that uh, we've identified with the group test which particular person is uh, with that particular protocol, which particular um, uh, in, individual or household, if we're testing household samples, is positive. So there's a way of very quickly figuring out, um, even doing pooling, uh, who's exactly positive. So now how, would that, how would that work with uh, human populations in cities or in businesses or schools? So my brother put me together with, so I wrote like a bunch of columns of group testing. I wrote one with my brother, my first article ever. It was my twin brother. Uh, it was fun. <laughs> and... Uh, the, um, uh, so then he put me together with an operations research uh, professor at Cornell, Peter Frazier. Peter worked out a protocol with some kibitzing for me on how you could group test the entire country, the entire you know, U.S. population, and you do it by household. So every household would uh, send their swabs in a reagent with a, with a cap on it. To uh, They get the kits in the mail. They send it back in the mail to a, a lab. And then the household would be pulled with other households and you would be able to test every household once a week. Since everybody is going to be quarantined together in a household, you really just need to know if the household is positive. And also because the individuals in the household have a correlated disease, if there's a, if you don't get the, the virus on one swab from one member, you get it from the other person. So that reduces the false negative problem. So anyway, we figured this out that in a month, in, in Peter's, uh, you know, uh, formulation that you could get the uh, entire virus contained and killed, captured and killed within a month. You'd have the end of the problem. Now, this was all written up in oh, April. Hold on. 
the reason it's the end of the problem is because you will have with very high reliability identified the universe of infected people. Yeah, and then you contain them. And yeah. by the way, the repeat testing, every but household... You can't have any leakage here. The, you know, the, a lot what of this is depending... How, how, you know, the question, the question I have is how robust is the protocol to small deviations from it actually working as it's supposed to work? If you don't get 100% participation, if you get 98.6% participation, does the effectiveness fall by 1.4% or does it fall by 14% or 24%? You see what I'm saying? Yeah, it's it's very robust because you really need just to get this R0, uh, you know, the, the, the number of people that one contagious person uh, conta- uh, infects, you need to get that below one. So if I'm contagious, if I'm infected, if I don't infect finally yeah. point people that's enough over time to eliminate this uh, contagion this is the so-called are so, not are not yeah so that's all incorporated he had built into the into his um, analysis uh, very high false negative rates much higher than we think is actually the case for this particular test so so there is a way that the president back in April could have uh, organized the entire country to even with people not using masks, not social distancing, we could have back starting in April had this entire thing over within a month. And by implementing by implementing a very systematic regimen of group testing yeah. to identify and isolate the virus. Yeah. And then you would get a, a notification from the lab, and then you could take a picture of it, send it to your employer that you're actually negative, your household's negative. And why have, why has work. no one done this? If this is such a good idea, has anybody anywhere done this? We have a president who thinks that the government. No, I'm saying anywhere on the globe. Has anybody anywhere on the globe implemented the process that you just got through describing? They've done they've done some uh, group testing in certain countries at a, to a limited degree. They haven't done groups of fifty. They haven't actually even tested groups of fifty, except in some research. There's a study out of Harvard, out of the Broad Institute where they showed that a group testing of 50 was very effective. There was another study in Israel, group testing of 50 even well, bigger. The, the only point I'm trying to make here, Larry, is that if we could have nipped this in the bud in April, anybody could have done it, and nobody did. So that makes me think it might not have been so easy to nip it in the bud in April. It's not just a function of who's president of the United States. Well, let me, let me respond to you, okay? There's only one organization that I know in the country who's going to start doing group testing, and that's – Cornell, because my brother has organized that through Cornell. So they're going to be testing students uh, and using group testing to test students. You know, I think we're going to do it here, too. I think I saw that in the memo where they were describing plans going forward, that there was some aspect of that would be group testing Let me tell you a little bit more about the group test. Just really, I don't want to spend too much time on it because there's this other idea, too, which is individual rapid home tests. But we'll get to that. Well, no, we're just talking about the economics of COVID-19 mitigation and management and the use of testing information. So this is perfectly fine. We've got plenty of time to cover both fronts. Okay. Okay. So anyway, so uh, wrote these articles uh, and then my brother and I were working with people at the, uh, the White House, pushing them, particularly we're very interested in getting Cornell to reopen because it's, um, you know, they're trying to get the universities in general, the economy back to, going. So my brother is pushing for group testing and the FDA was blocking it because they're, the, um, uh, they're concerned that there's going to be dilution if you have too many swabs together. 
uh, the, the, the negative swabs in the sample will have a, too big of an effect on the positive. You won't get the, you won't detect, detect there may be one positive sample out of the 49 negative, although it's been shown that, that, that it is detectable. But they're worried about it. And their language in terms of what's allowed for testing precluded uh, anybody actually doing group testing. So one of the re- answers to your question about why no country in our, including our country has done this has been the medical establishment, the uh, regulatory medical establishment in the different countries. And cer- certainly in our country, the FDA was blocking this. So after weeks of interacting with people uh, in the White House task force and even beyond that in the uh, who are, who are kind of in, involved with the FDA, uh, we got the FDA, well, the people in the White House and, uh, and other uh, officials in the government with some pressure from us. I don't want to say that we were responsible, but we certainly kind of started things rolling. The FDA changed the language and they put out an FAQ that allowed for sur- group testing for surveillance purposes. And then you saw a slew of articles being written in every outlet and you heard Dr. Uh, Brooks Burks and Dr. Fauci talking about group testing publicly. So now, again, it's so right now we're in a situation where group testing is much more accepted even by the FDA and where the president today could organize this effort and we could have the thing ended in a, in a month. There's a protocol right on Peter Frazier's website. It says exactly how to do it and, and that it will work. So, so we have the potential to do it. We have a, an ineffectual president, a president who, ideologically speaking, doesn't wasn't, won't t- do anything that, even though this is voluntary, we don't need to ha- compel people to be. I, I don't know why this has got to be about who's the president, Larry. I mean, for crying out loud, you this have a, a good idea. Hold on, let me just make this little speech. You have a good practical idea. Yep. Group testing is a way of tracking down quickly and isolating and preventing the further spread of the virus. And you have laid out a protocol. This is a good idea. Frankly, I think it's the first time I'm hearing it. And I'm a reasonably well-informed person. I don't know everything, but I'm a reasonably well-informed person. So the idea that it's Donald Trump's fault that we're not doing this, come on. That's just politics. And I'm not trying to defend Donald Trump. We should have a better president. I agree with you about that. But you cannot be sure that if Joseph Biden was president, we'd be doing group testing because nobody ever even heard of it. Well, hang on, so, hang on. So why don't we why don't we stay focused on what, what the, so right, on on what it is we have to contribute to the public conversation well, here, which is not another barb directed in an election <laughs> season at a partisan opponent, but is what? a scientific disquisition about the economics of COVID nineteen uh, control. Why don't we do that? Hey, Glenn, you're uh, <laughs> when you went into that uh, little rap. You had your eyes closed. I was about to get up and cry and try and close this door so it's less noisy. There's my wife's taking a shower. Okay, so give me a second. Okay, okay. Well, we, we don't want to play. We don't want to pl- blame the president uh, for things that he was not able to um, uh, to, to know about. But he, you got to recall that we're in a context here of my talking to people, my brother talking to people at, at the White House who were on the task force who uh, okay. were talking to the president, okay? So if they didn't okay. transmit this idea, 
And uh, certainly, I was transmitting the articles I was writing. I realize you don't sit on my website and watch everything that shows up. But I wrote five articles, and the last three were talking about this protocol. Here's what I'm saying, Larry. What I'm saying is the formulation of public policy is a messy Byzantine affair. I'm saying good ideas get overlooked every day by bureaucracies that because of the way that machinery works, the memo didn't get to the right guy's desk at the right time and the decision didn't get taken. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying we could reproduce this story. Good idea about an important public policy question that never quite made it to the top of the pile in dozens of different applications. And I'm saying that a single one of them would be uh, telling us anything important about the uh, virtues or the efficacy of who's president of the United States. That's what I'm saying. And, okay, and, I'm, I, and I'm saying that I personally, Glenn Lowry, grow weary of the way in which Trump, in the, and, and by that I put it in inverted commas, because I'm not just talking about the person, I'm talking about the phenomenon or even the era, insinuates itself into every, and corrupts the capacity to actually stay focused and, and, and be constructive in the things that we're saying. That's what I'm saying. Okay, what I'm saying is that this man takes has responsibility for for not enacting uh, because he set up an atmosphere inside the White House. The testing is taboo. The testing is something that is a big negative. So people okay. inside, I'm quite sure that they're quite afraid of sitting down with him and suggesting something that would be the government sending uh, testing kits to everybody okay. in the country. Uh, that's um, somehow uh, forbidden. So I think he bears responsibility. I think we, we'd have uh, probably 100,000, maybe at least 50,000 fewer deaths right now had he enacted, he had a different uh, attitude about testing and we had enacted this uh, protocol back a couple okay. months ago. We could enact it tomorrow. Now there's another way that, but let me just be clear to your listeners, your viewers here, that what I'm proposing uh, with weekly household group testing, and I'm also going to propose rapid home testing as another alternative way. And I want to talk about that. Uh, yeah, let that, me just say, be clear. Yeah. The households don't have to do it. They could refuse to do it, uh, but they wouldn't get any certification in the mail or by email that uh, they were negative, and they wouldn't be able to send a picture of that certification to the employer, to the restaurant to make a reservation, to the school to let their kid get into school. So if we had this information, it goes back to what you started talking about at the beginning about the nature of this conversation, this particular conversation, that we're, uh, we're dealing with a public goods problem and an information problem. So we need to have, uh, the, if, if people had the information that they actually were negative, tested negative, then the market would automatically say, look, uh, you can't enter here unless you have a mask, but you also have to have, send me a, uh, uh, an email with a picture of this or a text with a picture of this, uh, uh, a green, uh, green stamp on your test result that you're okay. If it's a red stamp. You have to stay home. You can't come to my restaurant. You can't come, come to my school. You can't come to my university. You can't come to my business with that. We have people, uh, everybody in the country, every household will have a strong incentive to want to get group tested. Or now let me just switch uh, gears and talk about rapid home testing. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on just a minute, Larry. I I want you to talk about rapid home testing. I just don't want the point to be missed because this is, the I think, one of the things that economics has to contribute to a conversation. The word public good, so not everybody knows exactly what it means, but we're just saying we're trying to produce an outcome here. Containment, 
of the virus, which requires all of us to take actions, which it might not be in the interest of any one of us to take just based on our own well-being. Okay, so we need to kind of effect a cooperative uh, thing where people do something, even though it seems like it doesn't pay for them. So we need to make it pay for them. So information plays a really important role in that, because if I'm running a business and people are afraid to come in there because they think other people might be sick, I have an interest in knowing whether or not people are sick. And if people have the information that they can provide to me, I can make sure my other customers know that they're not going to get sick so we can solve this problem. But, but, but unless there's a reliable way that a person can identify whether or not they are sick, that they can then show to other people, none of this kind of cooperative benefit is going to be realized. So that's the role that the kind of testing that you're talking about is playing in uh, solving a, a solving an important information slash public goods problem. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's really simple, and um, and it can be achieved by getting a, a you know a notification that you're you've been tested, and here's your result either via group test, but you could also have uh, testing via rapid home test. You know, we have pregnancy tests, which people can instantly see whether or not they're pregnant. So what about a rapid home test where uh, ideally you could lick a piece of paper and it would turn green if you were uh, negative for COVID and red if you were positive for COVID. Does that technology exist? There are companies now that are very close to having that technology. You have it in uh, within a month or two. I know uh, and I wrote about this with Michael Mina, who's probably the top epidemi- or one of the top epidemiologists at Harvard and the New York Times. You saw that op-ed uh, about 10 days ago came out. It's, at, it's posted at kotlikoff.net under columns. So uh, Michael uh, had been in touch with uh, different companies who are developing these rapid home tests. One of, one of the companies is called Sherlock. It's based in Cambridge. It's a... Uh, 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 it's got uh, one of the founders is Jim Collins. He's a, he was a BU um, bioengineer, moved to MIT. He's probably the top bioengineer in the world, as far as I can tell. He's a terrific guy. He's honest as the day is long. He's been uh, at I, BU forever, hasn't he? But he actually moved to MIT about 10 years ago. Oh, and I see. Okay. <laughs> just a leader in, in all kinds of, uh, uh, of these kinds of bioengineering uh, initiatives, including vaccines and uh so anyway, uh, so I, I've talked to Jim and uh, the people like uh, uh, Sherlock. They've got something that will come along within a month or two or three months. It, it certainly needs government funding to get it to happen quickly and to, uh, to roll it out, roll out these tests in large numbers. But there are other companies. There's probably another 20 out there. So what the government should be doing is rapidly putting together an expert panel and deciding which companies to – invest in and pay, pay them to produce, uh, uh, you know, enough uh, paper strip tests or rapid home tests, depending on how it's actually delivered for the entire population for a year. And they should do it in a redundant manner because they don't know who's going to win in terms of this competition, who's going to develop the best test. And it's not, there's nothing wrong with somebody getting, using three different rapid home tests at the same day because that's going to reduce the false negative rate. None of these tests are going to be as precise as the PCR tests that we all know about. But if you do okay, it every hold day. Hold on. Let me, let me just slow you down, man, because there's so much. 
I mean, there's this large question of how do you incentivize a research competition in order to solve a problem that has high uh, public value? And you suggest parallel kind of contests with the government seating and multiple investigative teams. Uh, but I, I want to ask you a question about the interrelationship between different fronts in the technological response to COVID-19, one of which is testing and the other of which is therapeutic and the other of which is uh, preventative vac- vaccination. How valuable would a universal testing regime, everybody every day, be in a world in which there were much more effective therapeutics and a workable vaccine? Would the would the um, Manhattan Project effort, crash effort that you suggest in the area of testing be kind of competing with a crash effort in the area of vaccine in terms of public uh, uh, money and public influence. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? How do those two different projects, re- are they complements or substitutes? Do you see what I'm asking? I would say in some way, I mean, in terms of, um, we don't know if the vaccine is going to work, how many they'll be able to produce. We, we want to diversify the risk here by, by investing in lots of different things that are going to save the day. And rapid home testing, group testing, uh, which would require uh, developing robotic uh, instrumentation at the labs. So there's, you know, there's some startup time on that too. Uh, treatment, better therapeutics, all of these things we should be investing in. There was a drop in the bucket in terms of money compared to giving out trillion dollars at a pop in different congressional bills. So we should have been doing this months ago. We should certainly be doing it today. There's no guarantee that the $2 billion that the government just spent on Pfizer will work in terms of the vaccine. God, God help us that it does, but um, we, there's no guarantee. So we need to invest, you know, in the, when they uh, worked on the Manhattan Project, there were something like 10 different technologies for how to actually um, make the bomb explode and how you could actually get the reaction to occur without it dissipating or spreading. And they just invested in all kinds of different options until they figured out which was the best and and uh, then they let the other ones go. So that's what we want to do, reduce the risk that we don't end up with an answer. And just on the issue of, of but another point, okay, so we need a Manhattan Project. If the, new, if the president doesn't read the New York Times 10 days ago, everybody else in the White House did read that article. He should know about that I think that they're actually working on, on, on trying to fund, I, I think that he will get behind, it's not my strong hope that the president will get behind rapid home tests because it may feel uh, less invasive, invasive for some reason than group home testing, organizing that. But if but having, having the government send every household uh, a rapid home test for every day for the next year, uh, that's just what we need because uh, and, and the test has to be, you know, sufficiently precise or uh, in order to make sure we don't get a lot of are, are you making light? I'm sorry, and I'm not being critical uh, unnecessarily. I just really want to ask. I mean, the logistics. A year's worth, is that what I'm understanding of tests for every household that they can use every day, every person? Well, think about the how, how does that get done? I mean, just physically, how does it get done? Is it the U.S. Postal Service that's delivering the these Postal things? Service. You could say... Here's, you know, we're talking about strips of paper, potentially just a piece of paper, a small piece of paper that you would lick in the ideal setting. And 
Well, why not hand them out like they do condoms in uh, some dormitories? Or, <laughs> you know, just uh, anybody can put their hand in and pull one of these test kits out of, a, of the bowl anytime they walk into the CVS. Or well, they whatever. might be in lots of different ways, but I think certainly getting the getting them to people that are maybe not are not mobile or disabled uh, through the mail is likely you know maybe one of these. So we ways. need we're going to need hundreds of billions of these tests. Yeah, well, we need to also provide them to the rest of the world too. We we don't you know that's also we're going to need trillions. We're going to need trillions of these tests. Uh, how many factories? How much? You know, what about the raw material? What's the supply chain look like? What are the logistics? What does it compete with? Do prices of certain things get bid up through the roof because you're trying to do all of this tomorrow? Just asking, have you thought it through? Yeah, I, I think it's really cheap. I think we're talking about potentially a dollar. Well, right now they're talking about potentially getting down to a dollar a test per person. So it's like $365 for you. Can the government afford to pay, give you $365? Yes. And Well, that's where you would get it down to. I assume it's 10 times that now. It's, well, even right now, they think it's $1 to $5, what these tests would cost. And my guess is that with, uh, you know, learning by doing it, we get down to $0.10 cents a, uh, a test. So so this is not, you know, we built a B-64, I think, B, what is it, B-64? We built these bombers. I'm not sure it was B-63, B-64 bombers. No, it was B-23 bombers in 64 minutes in World War II. That's what it was, B-23 bombers. And some bomber expert is going to tell me I'm crazy here, but this is what I read a while back that we were able to well, build bombers in 64 minutes. We were able to build uh, cargo ships in, in four days in World War II. So we can work this solution. Now, here's the one of the big impediments is the FDA in all this. The FDA is, has been uh, championing the PCR test, which is a, a great test. It's extremely accurate, but it's very expensive. And we've seen that it takes time to uh, to run it. And now people are now having to wait for two weeks to get an answer. So this test, this fantastic test that the FDA loves, is basically useless in our country. They're trying to do the FDA's job for them. What, what, what are their incentives and motivations? Do they simply not know what they're doing? or are they I think the paid? FDA does not know what it's doing. I think the FDA should be... Uh, uh, should, I think they should be um, uh, taken away from this task of approving testing for surveillance for this for trying to capture and kill the virus. They're focused on a perfect test for a single patient, so the doctor knows exactly the most information about that patient. So having the world's most expensive and slow, you know, perfect test, they can't be used for the entire population. That might be great if you've got, you know. Bill Gates, you can who can afford to pay for that test, and your just goal is to make sure that Bill Gates is healthy or sick, and you treat him the best way possible. But if you're trying, I got to- it. So, so you're saying that the culture of the FDA, which has developed in its role of guarding with drug innovation uh, against the uh, you know possibility that an ineffective or harmful uh, treatment would get widely disseminated, that's their that's how they understand their role. But we are now in a pandemic. And the risk-benefit calculus is is a, is very different with respect to the regulatory function. What should trigger disapproval in this environment should be much, much, much more uh, higher threshold than what would trigger disapproval in a conventional drug regulation environment. Well, let me, let me and and as a consequence, the FDA is now an impediment to 
effective public health uh, uh, overall. Is that these what you're saying? Yeah, these companies that are developing these rapid home tests are actually afraid of the FDA because if they send a, a let's think about a, a company that, a hypothetical company that develops a test that is has a, a 60% false negative rate. So only 40% of the time when you're actually positive will you be positive. But let's suppose that it never diagnosis calls you positive if you're actually negative. So it has okay. a zero. Okay. So as a yep. zero, let's suppose that that exists. The FDA would reject that out of hand. They would say, no, I get this it. It's a terribly insensitive test relative to the PCR test, which, and so they would say, we're rejecting this. We're not allowing it. But think about it. If you, no, I got it, man. You know, but you know, here's another thing, Glenn. If you took that test every day for five days, it'd eventually uh, show you positive. The probability that you're always going to flip uh, heads. Oh, I get it. 0. 0.6 to the fifth power is a small number. Yeah, or seven days. <laughs> and also, you can take it many times in a given day. If you, because the way the virus works is you have very low load when, you're, when you catch the virus, and then it grows exponentially. So these tests can be very inaccurate at low loads, but at highly accurate at high, high loads. So that even 40% uh, uh, 60% false negative rate could go down to 10 for 5% with very high loads, which happens when you get contagious. Even though you may not have any symptoms, you will be contagious. And you will very, you have billions of particles. You go from five particles of molecules, five molecules of virus in your, in your, uh, in particular, uh, uh, milliliter to billions within four hours. It can happen that rapidly from what the, uh, Michael Mina, the epidemiologist at Harvard told me. So, has this been written up? I'm sorry to interrupt, Larry, but just I want to underscore this point because I think it's such a profound point. The regulatory imperatives of, of drug approval are very different with respect to reaction to the pandemic than they are with respect to ordinary day-to-day uh, medical regulation business. And your example of even a test with a high false negative rate ought to be approved because the net effect of using it in the practical way would be to uh, significantly mitigate the the, the uh, disease, and that's what we're trying to accomplish. I think it really illustrates this point. So, what what would need to change in the you know chain of authority with because these things are all the FDA is not trying to tell the antitrust people what to do. The antitrust people are not trying to tell the environmental uh, waste site people what to. You, you see what I'm saying? How would you govern environmental regulation that would be flexible enough to accommodate this point that you're making? Well, let me. Let me... Uh, pick on one particular word and I'll come back to your, answer your question. I pick on one particular word that you said, the, the objective. They've got the wrong objective function at the FDA. They're trying to find the perfect diagnostic test, whereas we want to capture and kill the virus. That's our objective here. We're fighting a war with a, a pop gun, a gun when we have a cannon that we can bring out. Okay, So if the objective is to detect the virus when it's got a high load, when people are contagious, and never miss it, that requires an everyday test. That's why you want to test everybody every day. And and certainly when the load gets really high, you will get it from these inaccurate, less accurate tests. Uh, whether you get it the first time you t- take it, uh, do the test, or this the second time, you, there's nothing that says people who might feel that they're worried, they have some kind of symptoms, they start to sneeze or have a temperature, a low-grade temperature, they could take five, do five strip tests in, in the same hour. It's you know they don't have to do it five days in a row. They could do it five days in a minute, five times in a minute, 
because it's so cheap. You're sitting there, you've got all these tests in front of you. Right there, you just pull it off, lick let, it. Let me just note, this is, this is what a critic would say, and I, I, your hypothesis that the false positive rate is zero in your example is extremely important. Okay? Yes. If extremely- that false positive rate were 0.05, we might have an issue. You, you, you know what I'm saying? Because the implication of the information is so very different in the case of a positive and a negative. And the positive is going to elicit all kinds of responses, which will be very costly if it turns out to have been and false. the FDA, you know, FDA, to give them their due, the FDA is legitimately concerned about that as well, that people, but, but the instructions on these rapid home tests would say, if I were in charge of it, they would say, look, if you are positive on this rapid home test. Take it again. Well, take it in, but if you're, you know, serially positive, if, you know, five out of five are positive or some number out of five is positive, go to a, uh, to a, oh, to your, call your doctor, a more, from a doctor, more reliable get test. A PCR test, and we'll, and that's, and that's where the diagnosis, this can be much better for diagnosis. I understand that most people, according to the CDC, nine out of 10 people that actually get the virus never get the PCR test. So most people are not being diagnosed, but with what with this rapid home test, where you get a, a signal that you actually are positive, now you can go off and get the test, and we won't have everybody trying to get the PCR test every you know as is the case now, where everybody's jammed up trying to get the G- PCR test and there are enough not enough cap- capacity to do it, and it takes two weeks to get an answer. I see. So I want to. I want to raise another aspect of this thing because uh, I think these are really so, important. Let me points. just answer one quite your, your initial question, though. Okay. Which is, sure. If I were in charge, I would move the FDA out of this uh, uh, task of approving test testing and and have it be done by the CDC for the purposes of killing, uh, containing, and killing the virus. I would make this a CDC responsibility because they have, I think, the the right objective function where the FDA has the wrong objective function. And somehow... Well, now, what about uh, vaccine approval? Is the FDA going to be the last uh, word on that? I think that's a medical issue. Yeah, I think the FDA should be responsible for that, but not for... Oh, but testing's a different story. Okay. Testing's a different story. because Now, here, I wanted to get you... I'm sorry, go ahead. It's a different story because... Center for Disease Control, right? That's their job. Yeah. The FDA, Food and Drug Administration, they're trying to see if make sure that nobody ingests something that's going to poison them. Actually, the distinction between disease control and food and drug administration is kind of perfectly captured by the names of the agencies, isn't it? Yes. Right. But, but I wanted to get you to talk a little bit about the economic implications because I can envision a world where if everybody could identify that this morning at 8 a.m. with a tan, a a time stamped uh, image, I tested negative. And they could send that in with their reservation request to the restaurant. Even you and your lovely wife, Bridget, would be willing to dine in that restaurant with other people at tables nearby because you, you would have an ironclad proof that you were safe. Right. Uh, and it I just think that could revive the entire restaurant industry, couldn't it? It could. It could get every all the business, <laughs> the entire country back up on its feet tomorrow. Well, it's going to take at least, if we have these uh, rapid home tests, that we're describing in our hands today would probably take the economy three weeks to get back on its feet, literally that fast. Because we, within 14 days, we would find out everybody who was, essentially everybody who was uh, positive, they would be staying home. 
they would be informing their doctor. They would get a PCR test that so would confirm what they found. And if they were if they were positive, they would be staying home and they would not be infecting people outside of their home. So we would have the thing. We would win the war. If the president wants 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 to win the war, he needs to use the right ammunition. This could work at sporting events. It could work at meat packing plants. It could work at political conventions. Uh, it could work at economic seminar rooms. We could be back to life again if only we had the information and the way of verifying reliably the information. Uh, right. We are economists, after all. I think we got our fingers on something important here, Larry. Or I should say, you have your finger on something important, and I've got a free ride because you're my friend. Well, I mean, we're all, you know, I learned some stuff from the French guys. We're all talking about this collectively, economists. Anybody who's kind of just thinking about this without some kind of blinders on uh, that I've done the, you know, the FDA seems to have blinders. They're not looking at the big picture. They don't have the right objective. So they are blocking. And these companies are scared to death that they're going to be like Abbott Lab. They'll be treated like Abbott Lab, who came out with a five-minute test and then was criticized, I believe, by the FDA for that their test not being as sensitive as the PCR test. But if you can get an answer in five minutes, you can get another answer another in 10 minutes later or two days later. So, so Abbott Lab got burnt. These other companies that are smaller don't want to get burnt because they'll be out of business because they'll have on the web for the rest of their lives the FDA condemnation. That's, it's, it's, it's that information problem as well that needs to be dealt with. That's also interesting. The rejection is a is a stigma. It's a reputational hit. The company doesn't want to take the risk, and so it doesn't uh, even uh, venture the request for approval. Uh, so you're shutting down innovation. Uh, that's an interesting right. problem. These companies have yeah. like 20 things they got going, and they've got they figured oh for humanitarian reasons we're gonna have, we have to work on this. They start figuring out how to do it, how to get that rapid home test. It's not as sensitive as the PCR test, but over a week it's. If, if it's a PCR test that nobody's taking, it's much more sensitive, even 40%. But if it's 40% every day, the probability that you're going to be, it's, you know, it's going yeah, to Like I said, 0. 0.6 to the fifth power gets to be a small number. Okay, yeah. uh, shall we call it a day, Larry? Do you got something else you want the Glenn Show audience to hear from you? Um, no, <laughs> this has been great. I think it's a nice, you know, little package here, the economics of COVID-19 management focused on information and testing. Uh, the power of group testing uh, and the revolutionary implications of uh, personal testing on a frequent and verifiable daily basis. Uh, this could be done. Smart people are thinking about it. Larry is one of them. And uh, we're grateful for you coming on the Glenn Show, Larry. Glenn, let me just finish, uh, close with one little tidbit. You can have the last word. About uh, economics. And, you know, I'm not trying to uh, connect me with uh, this economist, but I was reading a book about somehow the, by accident about the making of the atomic bomb. It was a Pulitzer Prize uh, book about the entire history of how that was developed. And interestingly, you know, Einstein wrote this article, this letter to the president, President Roosevelt, that the Germans might be developing an atomic bomb. And uh, he's, and it was sent through different sort different through a, a circuitous route. It ends up in the hands of an economist who's actually a personal friend of Roosevelt. And the, it takes the economist a month to get in to see Roosevelt. He doesn't send a letter from Einstein. It takes him a whole month to get in to see Roosevelt. 
And then he spends an hour and a half talking to Roosevelt about old times. And he finally gets around to the topic. He never shows Roosevelt the letter from Einstein. He explains to Roosevelt the problem. And at the end of this, uh, Roosevelt gets the point that the Germans are going to develop it faster than, uh, than us unless we get on, on the problem, on the issue. And then he leaves the letter behind from what I understand in the book. So uh, what's the point here? Well, the point is that um, information uh, can be transmitted in different ways, but the main thing is the information is right information. And, uh, and then Roosevelt took action. So we're now at a point where we have to take action. However the message gets to the president, however it gets to Vice President Biden, if he becomes president, there are ways out of this uh, hole that we're in. There is a way to win this war. We have to start fighting it with real ammunition. Okay, Larry. Uh, well said. Again, thanks for coming on the Glenn Show. My pleasure.